again, everyone. Hope you're well. Welcome to the latest edition of the Opening Bell podcast. On this week's show, we're going to heap praise on Katie Taylor, silencing the critics, the doubters, and back with a revenge victory over Chantel Cameron. We'll go into the nuts and bolts of that. David Benavides, is he the is he the monster? In the super middleweight uh, division, will he get that big fight with Canelo? Those are questions we'll discuss. There's action all over the place this weekend as well. On Friday at York Hall, good bill there. Piece of European history uh, perhaps in the making or perhaps not. Uh, Ryan Garcia back uh, from his first career defeat and one of the best, I think, bills of the year. Full stop in Belfast when Michael Conlon is the topper. Plus, we remember Matthew Sad Mohammed, perhaps close to his light heavyweight best, certainly during the best spell of his career. We're going to remember one of his performances in this week. All of that coming up on the show alongside me, as ever, uh, my colleague and friend, Matt Christie. How are things? Yeah, good, mate. Thank you. Um, if you do hear a bit of background noise, um, I've got, and it'll only be a faint hum, I've got the heater on. Mm-hmm. It's kind of clicking on every now and again when the temperature drops below a certain level, which it's doing quite regularly because in my little converted shed out here, it's nippy would be the word. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got the old red roll neck on as well. On the, the back of your Christmas jumper last week, I've got something that resembles one this week. But yeah, we're, I think we're both in the coldest rooms of the house and it's dipping below uh, zero now. Um, you said if you hear a noise, I, I thought, you just meant the demons rattling round in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, always there. They're always there. A light shriek from time to time. Um, no real news lines, bar one, that will probably start to emerge in the coming days, maybe the coming weeks. It's been rumbling in the background for some time, of course, and that is uh, Connor Ben against Chris Eubank Jr. Eubank Ben, Ben Eubank. Um... Once upon a time, it was a novel idea that blossomed into a potential blockbuster and one that I was starting to buy into. You'll recall uh, from that special pod we did from the very first press conference to unveil uh, their prospective fight. But um, on it was and then off for obvious reasons with Conor Ben failing not one but two tests, two tests that still really haven't uh, been delved to in any depth or explained at all. Um, but despite that backdrop, the fight looks like he's going to go ahead February the 3rd, uh, probably at the Tottenham uh, Stadium. With or without the board's support was the line uh, that uh, Eddie Hearn and Conor Ben's team were proclaiming about two or three weeks ago. I don't really want to talk about it, Matt, but th- those are the, the bare bones of the, the news lines. Yeah, I think it'll be a big fight. Um, I understand why they're making it. I still think that it would be a far better look for the sport if appeal processes had reached a conclusion. Um, But that doesn't appear to be the way that we're going with this one. Yeah, so that's that. It'll be a big fight. Lots of people will watch it. Bada boom. Yeah, they'll make loads of money. And... Yeah, there we go. There we go. Let's move on. Yep, let's do to, it. Let's move on. Let's move on. To, a great, to, to a great story. Things. A great story if, you, if you're if you in the Katie Taylor uh, camp. But it's a boxing story. It's a piece of boxing history as well. Back from the seeming brink at the age of 37, producing a performance that that's a, I suppose not many of us felt she was capable of or she'd be able to produce is probably closer to the truth the truth matt in the face of cameron seemingly getting better and better seemingly being too big too strong but taylor produced perhaps one of the tactical performances of her life it was a blend of just about everything and she got a result that not many were forecasting where does it fit in the the scheme of surprises for you? Um, I th- it's, it's it's not an upset, is it? It's it it wasn't an upset. I think you were kind of 
you you always had that feel that perhaps Katie Taylor, like all the great fighters, may have had that performance within her. However, hands up, I was wrong yet again. Not really a newsflash these days when I'm wrong, to be honest. But <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I I personally didn't think that she'd be able to do it. Um, I thought, but but I think for 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 the reasons that we've already alluded to. As in, she was going back in with an opponent who beat her a few months ago. That after a long and grueling career at the age of thirty-seven, Katie Taylor was able to produce that and win the fight at super lightweight. Um, I think it has to be her greatest performance. Maybe it wasn't the best, or maybe it wasn't the most complete. But in terms of what was on the line, um, back in Dublin as well, um, I think that was Katie Taylor confirming her greatness um and i was really impressed i really enjoyed the fight i almost made a conscious decision to do my best to watch it purely as a fan um not to pay too much attention to who might be sitting at ringside not to pay too much attention about what was going on in ireland at the time um, and just focus purely on the fight. And as a consequence of that, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought Taylor, apart from that moment in round one, which was curiously not really discussed during the course of the fight, we didn't get to see a replay of it where it appeared in real time that Taylor had taken a jab. She was off balance, but lost, but, but went down. Therefore, it should have been called as legitimate knockdown but we were not able to see any replays of that so therefore you have to kind of accept that the referee's point of view was far better than anyone else's in that moment and made an honest call um but other than that moment I thought Taylor was fantastic um I thought Cameron played her own part in that fight as well I thought it I I think if it, if if that had been a legitimate knockdown and it had been scored as such, um, it may have changed the complexity and the complexion of the fight. Um, if it had been acknowledged, I think immediately she's being told, no, that's no knockdown. You can't then just come to the conclusion and say, well, even if it had been scored, we now know what the scores are, but it wouldn't have made a difference because you don't know how it affected both of them moving forward in that fight. But other than that, I thought Katie Taylor was sensational. And after all that she's kind of been through, and you go back, and I think I mentioned the Delphine Pursuit back in New York in 2019, and that was the point where I thought, maybe she's getting towards the end. We're like four years on from that, more than four years on from that. And for her to produce that performance, I think she deserves all the credit that, that we can give her. It wasn't a masterclass by any stretch. It it wasn't a it wasn't a beautiful fight by any stretch. It was a war, wasn't it? But it was tactical, technical warfare, and the adjustments that Taylor made, not just from the first fight to the second fight, Matt. What impressed me was the the adjustments she made from the first round to the second round in this rematch, because really the first round of this second fight started off exactly where Cameron had been through 75-80% of the previous fight until Taylor rallied late on. You could argue Taylor was building on the late confidence that she'd built in the first fight towards the end of it. But really, it was the turnaround from the first to the second rounds in this rematch because Cameron started heavy behind the jab. I was so impressed. I thought she was going after Taylor and I thought she's doing what she said she was going to do, and she was doing what she looked like she was on the cusp of doing in the first fight through rounds four and five. That is heavy jab, attacking Taylor, head and body notably, and really going after her, trying to knock her out. But Taylor managed to... She managed to manage the jab of Cameron from the second round onwards. And that, I think, was the most significant part of this rematch, Matt, that... Cameron's jab, which looked destructive in the first fight, which looked like it was thudding and a platform builder in the first round of the second fight. And Taylor just managed to negate it bit by movement, um, head and, and body, feet, 
from the second round onwards. And, and once she started to, to manage that jab, she she was able to, to then build a technical, tactical platform, which involved a lot of holding, we've got to stress as, as well. It, there, was, there was a lot of that um, transgression of the, the rules, um, outside the rules as, as well, in and around it as well. But I thought that negating Cameron's jab from the second round onwards, that, that was the big play. Yeah, I mean, that could be, uh, I mean, T Katie Taylor negated the best of Chantal Cameron really is a succinct and accurate description of the whole fight. Unlike in the first one where Cameron was able to build up a head of steam, um, every time she started to have any sort of success, Taylor was able to make the adjustments to, to, to regain control. Um, I thought some of the rounds were fairly close. To be honest, um, I know that it was scored in the end fairly wide, um, particularly from the zone commentary team. And I'm not going to sit here and disagree with with Barry Jones. And particularly, I'm not going to sit here either and disagree with people that were there, that were watching it in a different way to I was watching it. Um, but there were a few rounds that I thought that I, there were a few rounds where I thought that that, that Cameron won them. Um, but in the end, she was second best for large portions of the contest. Um, the cut, the headbutts, the holding, that won't have helped Chantel Cameron either. Um, but it's a rough old sport, isn't it? Um, and crikey, they, both of them, I think, deserve our admiration for, for what they went through inside that ring. It was a gruelling fight in the extreme. It, like you say, it wasn't a classic because there were moments, there, were a lot of hot, there's a, there was a lot of holding, there was a lot of spoiling. But in terms of engrossment, uh, it was right up there for me. It's one of the best I've seen this year. Yeah, it was a tough, hard fight. I think everyone's saying it was a, one of the... I, I think because they were those that were ringside, because of the atmosphere, because of what was at stake, because of the potential storyline or the storyline that started to develop, the boisterous crowd, the, the ageing Taylor, not supposed to win, producing a bit of history. I think all of that probably became quite intoxicating for anyone who was ringside. And ultimately, there will be people, whether you're Andy Lee or whoever, maybe Mike Costello, who, who felt it was one of the greatest fights they've ever seen. And I think it's probably because of all of those elements. It, it sucked you in, I think, if you were ringside, more so than if you were just taking a little bit of a step back. It was a, it was a really good and it was a hard, hard, tough fight. I don't think it was the spellbinder that Taylor Serrano was, personally, but it was such a hard fight, such a hard fight. And I think in the same way that Taylor managed just to produce the little difference makers, Matt, I wonder if Cameron, who coming into this fight said she could almost not watch back the first fight because of all the mistakes she's making. Well, she felt that about the first fight. I think she's think she's gonna she'll be in tears about watching this back because I think she also contributed to her own downfall too eager too front foot to cramp her own distance and when you know her jab is so strong she could beat Taylor just off the jab at distance if she wanted to do it properly and she just kept cramming her own space she was just so eager and that's what happens Matt you know I I felt the same way she did I thought what we saw through the first half of the fight, she would just use to build on and really motivate herself to go after Taylor. And that's exactly what she did. It Ultimately, I was wrong. She was wrong. It was the wrong thing to do. And it, it seemed to play into to Taylor's hands. There was a lot of stifling of her own work. And even when she wasn't uh, kind of marauding forward, and marauding probably sounds a little bit disrespectful for what she was trying to do. But there was, yeah, almost a disconnect between the jab and her feet. Um, the, I don't know the reasons why, but I would imagine in that sort of environment, that sort of atmosphere where, to be honest, pretty much everyone in there wanted Katie Taylor to win, that eagerness to stamp some authority on the fight, that desperation to repeat the victory from the first time round, I think it's understandable that it led to mistakes. Um, I'd be interested in a third fight. I'd be really interested in a third fight to see 
who would come out on top. Um, I think what we've seen in fights one and two means that the third fight would sell. There's obviously a very obvious storyline there in that they, they're they're at 1-1 one, one and they need to find out who, who the best is. Um, I wouldn't write off Cameron in the third fight at all. Um, so you do wonder now. I mean, I'm not going to start mentioning the R word again for Katie Taylor. Um, <laughs> she's proved me wrong so many times. She's proved lots of people wrong so many times. And just before we started recording, I was going down and I was looking kind of at what she has achieved over the years, right back through her fantastic amateur career. Um, and she's a credit to the sport of boxing, Katie Taylor. Uh, she's a credit to Ireland. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's any other fighter in the female code who has done what she has done or has shown that level of dedication to the sport of boxing. I think the thing with Katie Taylor, and this is why she should be an inspiration, is because every waking moment from when she was a girl has been boxing. Whether she's got a fight in the diary or not, it is purely dedication to the sport of boxing. And to be a success and to be great, that's the only way you can do it, is through that insane level of dedication to one of the hardest sports that the world has ever seen and Taylor's done that and she's getting all of the rewards for it and I think irrespective of what happens next for Katie Taylor she's stamped her name in history and then some it was a mental pace wasn't it I mean, it was absolutely insane the pace right from the start and actually it did and we're not going to go back into to what is a continued discussion about the two versus three round a uh, three minute um uh distance time of 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 fights but it it did make you realize that actually katie taylor's a, a two minute fighter and chantel cameron's probably a three minute fighter further down the line and that was a two minute fight <laughs> it was an insane uh ridiculously paced two minute uh, fight that and I think that that suits Taylor Taylor's always been like that It'd be inter- the thing is she's got it in her you there, there have been times you know right down the stretch rounds nine and ten against um Natasha Jonas she she found time bought time got behind her boxing so so Taylor's got it in her to be a three minute round fighter no question about it but she her, her style as a as a professional built on what she did as an amateur it, it is a one is a continuation of the other and she very much has formed herself as a as a two minute uh, fighter I, I think that's fair to say yeah I think Katie Taylor actually was one of the fighters you know when this I mean this debate feels like it's been going on for since for, for as long as, as as women's boxing came back into prominence 2012 2013 and I think Taylor was has always been an advocate of the two minute rounds and I think you're right to say that. It's interesting. We spoke to um, four female fighters for this week's Boxing News, the panel, um, and we put it to them. Should it be two-minute rounds or three-minute rounds? Is it time for the duration of women's boxing to be extended? Uh, we spoke to Caris Artingstall, Emma Dolan, Nina Hughes, and Maisie Rose Courtney. And it was interesting in that it certainly wasn't unanimous across the board that they should be fighting three minutes. Now, Maisie Rose Courtney slightly uh, bullish in her response like how far do men and women run in a marathon we run 26.2 miles the same distance as men I don't understand why we have to fight 10 two-minute rounds just because we're women it doesn't make sense will it change a lot of the outcome of fights yeah absolutely Uh, a lot of people will get found out Um, Nina Hughes said that two-minute rounds does make it more exciting while while women's boxing is still on the rise and trying to gain a bigger audience we should keep the two-minute rounds um two minutes makes what could be boring fights exciting because the pace is faster and there's a lot more action. Um, Karis Hartingstall said, you've got females who are capable of doing the longer distance, but the vast majority wouldn't be able to deal with it. The entertainment side of things would drop massively. I've watched some fights and I wouldn't like to watch them over a longer format. I watched some fights and I think I wish this would hurry up and finish. Um, And Emma Dolan um, has said that it's got to be a gradual process and you can't simply come in now and say, well, okay, for championship fights, we have three-minute rounds, and for all the rest, we have two. So although I think I think 
the perception is that all female boxers would jump at the chance to have three minute rounds um that when you actually speak to them it's not always the case and i remain very much in the two minute round camp at the moment and i think that had that fight on saturday been 10 threes it would have been a different fight it wouldn't have been nearly as exciting as it was and kind of echoing what nina hughes says while we are trying to build a bigger audience and make this an appealing product at the moment it's working two minute round works so why would we change it to three at this stage really sensible panel that and i, I think significant points made that echo and chime with a, a lot of the things we've been saying on the pod and i just hope that you know, one of the points that was made there is it, it, it's not a women's rights issue. It, it's, not, it's not about what women are capable of or not capable of. That And Serrano was kind of championing that. And it's, he shouldn't, that, that, especially in social media times these days, it's easy for stuff like that, you know, to, to suddenly become the thing. And it's not about, it's not about what women can or can't do. It's just about what's probably best for the sport at this short time um, and for those that aren't quite as good as, as the others at the very top, uh, sorry, uh, on the way to the, the very top, you know, the, the elite could do those three minute rounds competitively, probably no problem at, at all, but not so many or not all further down the food chain. Anyway, that is something that is going to develop and, and grow and evolve over the course of the next 10 or so years. Let's not forget, we're only 11 years on from boxing for women being introduced to the Olympic Games. It's only 11 years ago. And by the way, 17, 18 years ago, Katie Taylor was winning a, what her first European and, and World Championships, Matt, 17, 18 years ago. You do feel that that knockdown looked a genuine jab knockdown in the first round would have at least affected the complexion of the fight in the short to mid term you can't be dogmatic and say that it meant this or it meant that you simply boxing has too many twists and turns for us to be saying something like that but it would have at least affected the complexion of the fight. And let's not forget, when you're only going to 10 rounds, said this before, the scoring alone means there's less rounds now to go to win back that two-point deficit. And that suddenly, mathematically, makes a very, very different story. So you have to feel it would have played a part. I also think, Matt, I don't want to go into this in too much detail, I do think Dazzle need to have a word with themselves a, a little bit about... Um, production and editorial just a little bit you can't you can't I love Andy Lee but you can't have your main pundit calling one fighter by the Christian name and the other fighter by the surname throughout and even allowing for the fact that you know in Ireland Katie is Katie I, I get it you know the same way Bono is, is Bono and Tyson is Tyson I get it but it's not a good look or sign to you got your main pundit calling one the Christian name and the other one the surname. It just doesn't look objective or balanced at all. And I, I think the overall tone needs to be checked a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean it was kind of it was kind of startling by the end of the round, by the end of the fight, with with Andy Lee really struggling to contain himself a little bit. And um yeah, I've got all the time in the world for Andy Lee. Loved watching him as a fighter. I think he's he's got an excellent boxing brain. I think he's an excellent pundit. I love spending time with him. But yeah, I was I was cringing a little bit by the end of that fight. He's, he's not alone. Be, be, it would be the same if it was Bellew and Chisora or whatever. You know, it's just uh, I, I, there has to be a bit of journalistic integrity, and that should come from further above. It's not you. You can't. They can't help being who they are. Um, but that that has got to come editorially from further above. Anyway, sounds like Taylor Cameron, Cameron Taylor, will now be Taylor uh, Cameron 3. A possibility then, Crook Park mentioned again, but surely, Matt, it, it, it's going to be somewhere big if it, if it is in 24 and, the, say, in the spring of the summer. It's the, it's, it's the fight that makes the most sense, isn't it? Um, 
Cameron will want it. You presume Taylor would want it. You do wonder, however, if Taylor will be looking at the next challenge. You may feel that she's that she can now push this rivalry to one side and she's done enough. But I think in the female code, Taylor Cameron three is probably the the biggest fight to make at the moment. Um, and I think kind of going back to that slightly romanticized view of boxing legends of the past this is what boxing legends do isn't it they have their trilogies they win their trilogies um and yeah i think the female code is crying out for a rivalry like this at the moment so yeah i think we should embrace it and i suspect it will happen it makes an awful lot of sense andy lee of course in the corner he's the he's the nurturer the mentor um for paddy donovan who fought on the undercard uh quite a striking knockout uh, defeat in four rounds of Danny Ball, who'd also been stopped um, in four rounds, by the way, previously by former British and Commonwealth champion uh, Echo Esserman. So, big step up for, for Donovan. He looked fast and fluent. I've called a couple of his early fights, actually. I've called him, I, I think, um, two or three times, maybe more. Um, he's got a lot of speed, um, a lot of dash, plenty of skills. That was a little bit of a statement for him on the night on the undercard. Yeah, I mean, you looked at it, you could see it was clever matchmaking, really. Um, Paddy Donovan was always the favourite, but he surpassed my expectations in that. I mean, Danny Ball is no mug, um, and Donovan brushed him aside with a minimum of fuss, and I think it's almost a case now of... Um, the stabilizers are well and truly off for Paddy Donovan. Let mm. him loose and, and see what happens. And I think his relationship with Andy Lee is, is a great one to see. Um, I know we've we've we've... Don McRae has, has, has written about it before in Boxing News. Um, it's, um, yeah, I think I think he can't have any bet, anybody better than Andy Lee to, to guide Panny Donovan, Donovan through the ranks. What did you, what did you make of the Gary Cully Reese Mole decision, Alex? Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have to, I have to hold my hand up, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm quite an objective person as a rule, generally. But I did have a bet on Reese Mould. Mould. Um, he was five to one. I, very occasionally, it will happen once a year, once every two years. You just get a set of odds that, in your opinion, are miles wider where they should be. I thought Cully should just be favourite, but only just. Um, I know his record looks great recently, where he's been stopping people. I've called a couple of them. Um, until recently as well, so I've seen I've seen a bit of Cully uh, from close. Um, he's freakish for the weight, but anyway, I, I I just thought the market was a bit wide. I didn't think Cully was quite as monstrous as he's looked on paper, and of course he was coming off the back of a defeat as well. And Mould's a good, solid little fighter. I thought five to one was ridiculous, so I had a bet on Mould. Thought I thought he just won it, but it was one of those you could you could debate about, to be honest. Um, it was close. What did you think? I thought it was close. I thought you could make an argument either way. I wasn't sure which way it was going to go when it got to the very end. Um, it's difficult when you've had a bet on it as well, isn't it, for you? Yeah. As much as you want to remain objective, it's it's very hard for your logic not to be skewed somewhat. Um, but yeah, it didn't think it was a, a, a stinking bad decision or anything like that. It was one of those that if it had been a draw, you'd probably go, well, that's probably about fair enough. Um, but yeah is what it is yeah no exactly i i never if, if you have a bet take responsibility for it win or lose it's, if you put money on something take responsibility for it and don't don't moan and don't certainly don't moan just because you've, lo you've you've lost and try to think as objectively as you can that's always been my my methodology so yeah there we were uh, meanwhile vegas speaking of betting <laughs> Vegas, Vegas, baby. Um, David Benavides continues to march, and, and march is kind of what he does quite vigorously, doesn't it? And he marched right through Dimitris Andre, who, who tried most of what he knew, or maybe all of, of what he knew Andre. But at the age of 35, maybe finally getting into a fight, a proper fight, against someone more on his level, but also significantly, Matt, against a big guy for the weight. Um, and it all came home to roost for Andrade, and, and Benavides literally just tore through him. 
bit by bit and stopped him in six. Quite impressive, really. Really impressive. Um, I mean, the fact that Benavides did that to Andrade a few months after beating Caleb Plant um, illustrates uh, Benavides' intentions at super middleweight, illustrates his ability, his power, his sheer size. He's a frightening specimen is David Benavides, particularly when he's in full flow. And I think it you can look at that and you can forget, however, the successes that Andrade was having, particularly early on. Um, I think one of the judges only had Andrade up by a point at the time of the stoppage. Um, didn't think it was that close, but I think you could argue that out of the completed rounds, Andrade may have nicked a couple of them. Um, but the manner in which Benavides dealt with someone as awkward and slippery and skilled as Andrade bodes very well for his future and the only fight to make in the super middleweight division now is Canelo against Benavides um, I still wonder if it would be the big fight I know there's a lot of excitement about Benavides in the boxing world but I still wonder if Canelo will look at this fight with Benavides and go, hang on, can I earn a bit more money somewhere else against someone else? But Canelo, if he wants to be regarded as that best super middleweight on the planet, which he worked hard to achieve, then there's a very obvious rival, and it's the only fight to make. And I think for us boxing nuts, it's one of the best fights to make in the sport at the moment as well. Um, I felt a bit sorry for Andrade. We mentioned last week... Um, that he's kind of, he felt like he's almost spent his entire career calling out people desperate for a chance and then it came in a weight class that I don't think he's at his best in. I don't think he's a natural super middleweight. It came when he was at 35 years old, when he was probably peaking really, when he was about 29, 30. Um, he gave it a go. He probably won't look back that fondly upon how it ended. It's never good to be kind of, hauled out of combat or to indicate that you don't want to carry on fighting but he had reached the point where he simply couldn't win the fight I understood it completely um, but I think that is probably the end for Andrade now he might get what he might get a fight as kind of a stepping stone type fighter he might score the upset Didn't don't think he looked shot to pieces but what we should focus on is how good David Benavidez looked and hopefully we get that fight with Canelo next year Nearly a decade, nine years between Benavides at 26 and Andrade at 35. I think your your point about timing, freshness, very much an important one. And that's 24 knockouts and 28 now for Benavides, who, who does lots of interesting things. He's quite creative, isn't he? There was that Golovkin against Rubio raised right hand punching down. I saw that in his repertoire. Um... He's got a very heavy jab. He steps, almost explodes right into it, doesn't he? He almost lifts his left leg and really leans and moves into the punch. It's a heavy, and he, he often throws a lead right hand as well. When it looks like he's just about to change stance, it's, it's, he's quite unusual, he's quite creative, but he's often square. Um, and I suppose the big question I put, Matt, on the back of this one is how to stop the march, question mark. How do you stop him marching forward? I go back to Bernard Hopkins and his methodology. You look at your opponent's best weapon, how do you shut it down? How do you stop the march forward with Benavides? Do you, do you hit him before he gets into range? He's got such range that he, he can throw a lead right hand from distance. He can explode with, with his jab when it looks like he's not quite there yet. So he has got range himself. How do you stop the march? That's a question for Canelo Alvarez, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I think someone like Canelo could give Benavides all manner of headaches. I think the, the big thing going into this, and if we are in six months' time, say, sitting down and, and, and previewing a May-Las Vegas fight between Canelo and Benavides. We will probably be spending a bit too much time on the question, but how much has Canelo really got left? Um, and is Benavides simply too young and too strong and too fresh for him? But I think the Canelo of a few years ago, the Canelo of the second and third Golovkin, well, the second fight in particular against Golovkin, I think I'd make Canelo... A, a pretty hef, hef, heavy favourite 
over Benavides. As much as I like Benavides, and there's moments where you're watching him, where you're like, wow, like you say, how on earth did you just do that? How did you craft that shot when your feet were in that position? That is the mark of something special. But there is also something about Benavides as you watch him and you think, well, he's not quite indestructible. He's not invincible. There's enough there to make a fight against the right opponent intriguing and not a no-brainer to call. Um, I'd really like to see him against Canelo. And I'd like to think that a fight like this might just bring out the best in Canelo. The fact that people, there will be an awful lot of people that will pick Benavides. And again, going back to this week's panel, um, I think two, we, the, the one question was about women's boxing and should the rounds be extended. The other was Benavides versus Canelo, who wins? I think two out of the four straight away was like, Benavides. Benavides mm -hmm. wins. And I think the fact that there will be so many people thinking that Benavides will have the better of Canelo, particularly at this stage of his career, that that might light the fire under Canelo in a way that we haven't seen for a little while. Stylistically, it's probably one of the biggest challenges out there for Canelo, stylistically. And I suppose, like you say, it might just be one of those fights where you suddenly, all the mistakes that Benavides makes, and they are, there are plenty of them, Maybe they all come home to roost and you, you turn around and you go, ah, right, ultimately it's all about levels. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. But maybe he's just a nightmare for Canelo. And in answer to my own question, how do you stop the march of, of someone like Benavides? I think, I think the obvious one is you just put him on the back foot. That would be, I suppose, one choice. But Canelo doesn't... He doesn't quite fight with the energy that you might need to diffuse and quell someone like Benavidez. So I don't think that option's out. The other one is, which is probably Canelo's go-to, is that he makes you second-guess yourself about throwing punches because his defence is so good and he's going to make you miss, but he's going to counter really sharply. And I suppose that is probably the way that if you're a Canelo, you're going to beat Benavidez if the fight ever takes place. As Matt says, stylistically, it's a really, really good matchup. But we look forward to talking about the prospect of that in the coming weeks. Um, this weekend, loads going on, Matt, and Friday, uh, BT action again on a Friday night, this time at York Hall. Uh, Gavin uh, Gwynn uh, fighting for the vacant European lightweight uh, title. Um, of course, he's been a, um, a British champion, defended that twice. Uh, more recently against uh, Craig Woodruff. Um, Gavin Gwynn has, has done really well to, to sort of recover from that Tennyson loss and, and really harness his career. He's up a, against a name, Matt, isn't he? This is a blast from the past. Italian Emiliano Marsili. Remind us about him. Crikey, it feels like he's been around for, for an awfully long time. And do you know why it feels like that? Because he has. 47 <laughs> years old. I mean... We, we've we done a bit of research on this at Boxing News and we think that he will be the oldest European champion in history if he wins this weekend. British fans will probably remember him from when he came along and he beat Derry Matthews. Um, 2012, was that, Alex? It was, in Liverpool. Um, and that was the only time, I think, that he's fought outside of his home nation. Um, you would think that... Gwyn will win this you really would think that um, but <laughs> I don't know, this is a strange old sport isn't it but I think <laughs> at 47 surely um, his best days are behind him unbelievable yeah once he's been away from home and that was uh, when he beat Derry Matthews in seven rounds and that was a that was a just a destructive performance on the night that's on Friday uh, Ryan Garcia returns on Saturday in uh, Texas he's taking on Oscar Duarte um, Duarte really solid um, tough rugged uh, fighter that, that's going to be quite interesting to see how Garcia handles that in terms of uh, ability um, he'd have too much class won't he Garcia do you think You'd think so. Uh, Deck Warrington speaks to Ryan Garcia in detail, actually, in this week's issue. Um, Garcia opens up about um, why he lost to Tank, 
Tank Davis that he wasn't really he'd kind of fallen into not taking the sport seriously enough and he kept calling out Tank for so long that in the end when it was agreed he felt that he wasn't ready at that point but he couldn't go back on it um, you would think that this fight has been made to make Garcia look good as he returns to the super lightweight class he looked very good when he was there in 2022 didn't he um, and I think this may may come down to levels but with someone like Ryan Garcia let's not forget this is not the first time he's opened up and said well I've learned my lessons from the past This that won't happen again there are demons that tease the shoulders of, of, of Ryan Garcia and get in his ear roll. Um, but he does say that this, he feels better than he has done at any point. That's not a new line in the build-up to a fight, by the way, folks. You may have heard that one before. Um, but interestingly, he also talks about his relationship with Oscar De La Hoya. And there's... I think I think he's, he's, he's eager for to be let free from from golden boy shall we say we know that he's being quite vocal about his displeasure with with oscar de la hoya um but he speaks about that as well it's well worth it's well worth reading um and also another one to read is uh is moses atoma who you've mentioned is on a bill in your call on friday night um his conversation with deck taylor uh is just great to read um, just the confidence flowing through him. He's getting ready to go and, and help Tyson Fury prepare for, for Alexander Usyk. Completely undaunted. You know, Dex says to him, well, how does it feel to be going off and, 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 and spending time and sparring who is regard someone who is regarded as the best heavyweight on the planet? And Atoma turns around and goes, it's just a matter of opinion though, isn't it? Is he really? Is he really that good? Well, we'll find out. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to read it. The, the confidence in him. He's still set on being, winning a belt by the age of 20 and beating Mike Tyson's record, even though Frank Warren has said, we've got to stop this chat. Atoma's all over it. Um, we also speak to his manager, Francis Warren, in the article. So that's well worth a read. Um, but I think the, the, the bill that has drawn... The most interest from me, or the one I'm looking forward to the most, is the one that takes place in Belfast. It's a heck of a bill, isn't it? Oh, it's a cracker. And uh, Belfast for boxing is just a, such a great place. Uh, that uh, venue itself used to be rocking so many times. Went over there uh, two or three times to see Frampton fight. Just a, just a great experience um, and a terrific city, whether it's for boxing or, or not. And Mick Condon is uh, the bill topper up against uh, Jordan Gill. The, the betting for, for all the fights is quite lopsided. Um, Conlon, long odds on to beat Gill, 9-1 to one on. He is Crocker's 3.5-1 uh, on to beat McKenna, moving up in weight. McCombs, 4-1 to one on to beat Sam Maxwell. Williamson against Jaco. Jaco's odds on to beat Williamson, although stepping up in class. So the odds makers have a very definitive idea of how this is going to roll. They're good fights, one after the other. And Conlon against Gill. Conlon, of, of course, coming into this one on the back of a, another world title knockout defeat. But maybe this is, maybe this is, is this a good reintroduction? Is this a, a good level for him to be reappearing at home? How do you view this one? It makes sense. Um, I think the worrying thing for Jordan Gill, and let's not forget, it's not that long ago where Jordan Gill was one of the brightest young talents in the matchroom stable. Um, and yeah, it all started to go wrong. I think he's, I don't think he's fought actually since he was stopped by Kiko Martinez. And I think the, the nature of that particular performance is probably why Gill is such a heavy underdog. Um, the time out of the ring may have done him good before that. There was, there was punishing fights that he was, he was both losing and winning. Um, you would think if Michael Conlon can reproduce something like his best form that he should win this one comfortably I think in terms of styles and, and levels that, that, that Conlon is the better fighter but there's question marks with Conlon as well he didn't look great in his last fight um, it's that will have been a concern let's not forget he was knocked out nastily by Lee Wood as well a couple of fights before that um, Conlon all of a sudden who is the owner of the probably most famous or infamous depending on your point of view middle finger in boxing um, <laughs> is all of a sudden at a crossroads 
Um, I think he'll come through this one, though, against Jordan Gill. Yeah, moving on from top rank, um, still hoping to, to get that world title opportunity. They're both vulnerable, aren't they? But but probably Gill has been vulnerable at a lower level than Conlon, and and more and more often, perhaps at that lower level. Maybe that's going to be the difference between the two. Maybe it's just styles. Maybe it's relative stages of their career. Maybe it's a combination of of, of all of that. Do you fancy it'll be distance or or maybe there might be some fireworks? I, I kind of lean towards a distance fight, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Conlon kind of forced the stoppage down the stretch. Um, it depends how Conlon approaches it as well. What 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 is he trying to get out of this? Obviously, bottom line has to be victory. Um, mm. But yeah, there's, there's there's an awful lot that Michael Conlon psychologically will need to work through. But we've seen him come back before after that aforementioned loss to to Lee Wood, where I thought Conlon looked really good in the two fights he had between Lee Wood and Lopez. Um, and I think you're right to say. I mean, I think at this at this level, this is where Conlon can look exceptional. Um, but you just wonder if there is a hangover developing from previous disappointments. Otherwise, good matchups. Uh, McKenna moves up in weight to to take on the hard punching uh, Crocker. That that's a tough night's work for McKenna. He's so tough, isn't he, McKenna? I mean, his mindset and he's hard as nails. But Crocker, I remember being ringside when Crocker fought Louis Green, and the sound of the punches just landing on the gloves mat. Oh my goodness me, Crocker can whack and. It's going to be interesting to see how if he connects against um, McKenna moving up in weight. Tough night that for McKenna. You've got to favour Crocker in that. This is the kind of opportunity that Crocker's wanted. Oddly, he was making progress through lockdown when many other fighters were stalling. Um, but since then, he hasn't had the opportunities mm. to take his career forward. Part of that has got to be, I think, and it's got to mention it has been the 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 collapse of mtk um Mm -hmm. who were building him um but he gets this opportunity and you would think with how long he's been waiting for it and on this stage that he will take it with both hands crocker is a frightening fighter he's a frightening human being just to to look at really um there's just something about him and i think mckenna with the way that mckenna fights you do you are a little bit fearful will mckenna be able to go the full 10 he's 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 tough McKenna but he will need to be against Crocker and I think McKenna who is what 33 years old you've got Crocker who's still only 26 and I think those seven years will start to feel like a lot more as the fight progresses because Crocker as we've seen isn't someone who seems to have any issues stamina wise and I think he can keep punching until McKenna eventually crumbles. But we'll see. McKenna might surprise us because he's still got a lot of ambition. Not so, I'm not saying I'm picking him to win, but I think it might be slightly more competitive than some people think. Yeah, he's a good fighter, Crocker. I've seen loads of him early on in his career. Um, if he'd have had the right kind of guidance and support over the last couple of years, I mean, I think he's a better fighter than Conor Ben. And he just hasn't had the opportunities. He's a good fighter. Watch him, Crocker, if you haven't seen him all already. McComb against Maxwell, that's a that's a good matchup. And then Ajarko moving up in class against Troy Williamson, finally, uh, Matt. He, he's odds on to, to win it. Um, again, this is probably finally the litmus test for Ajarko, isn't it? Yeah, he's got something about him that makes you think that he could go on to reach the highest level in the sport um i can understand again why um he's a big favorite here i think the biggest concern for 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 troy williamson will be the performance against josh kelly had this had been made a year or so ago or two years ago um i think you'd be calling this more of a 50 50 fight um but Troy Williamson getting on in age as well. Um, but it's a really good test. Williamson's not finished, don't get me wrong. He will likely be spurred by the long odds against him. Um, the fact that this is really being built as a vehicle for a Gyarko. So 
Williamson, a bit like McKenna, I think, might give this a real go, make it uncomfortable in for, for, for moments of the fight, but I think Igyako wins this one, probably on points, and maybe wins 8 out of the 10. All of that coming up in a fantastic Dazon bill, by the way, on Saturday. You'll be able to see all of that really quality card that is. Coming up next is this week. And this week, we take you back to the 28th of November, 1980 in San Diego, when the flying Matthew Saad Mohammed, the Philly fighter, the light heavyweight champion of the world, defended his WBC title for the fifth time against the unbeaten uh, Zambian uh, based and fighting out of the UK, the number one contender, Lotte Umwale, who was unbeaten in 21. He'd um, surprised uh, Tony Simpson a couple of years uh, earlier as, as well, then unbeaten uh, Tony Simpson uh, back in 1978. He sparred John Conte. Uh, fighting out of uh, George Francis's Highgate uh, gym. He's gr- really interesting story, Lottie Umwali. But an unknown, and an unknown against the hard-punching Mohammed, Matt, who at this time was going through the, the best period of his career. I think I think this is Matthew Saad Mohammed at his best. Um, frightening when on the attack, appears somewhat delicate when under the cosh um, deceivingly so um, and was just a, a, a joy to watch uh, at this particular point in his career um, this was the, his fifth defence of his WBC light heavyweight title in 19 months um, you mentioned Mwale uh, who had yeah, knocked out Tony Sibson in the first round Sibson weighing <laughs> 164 in that one he was unbeaten going into it Mwale weighing 167 um, but arguably, I think, as well as wins against Bunny Johnson and Jesse Burnett, which were decent wins, which kind of solidified his standing in the light heavyweight division, there's one in particular that, that stands out probably as Mwali's most impressive and should give you an idea of his quality. And he beat Marvin Johnson over eight rounds. Marvin Johnson, one of the best light heavyweights at this particular time. And Johnson, of course, would go on and win belts late into the decade. Um, but you look at... What Matthew Saad Mohammed was doing, of course, he'd had the two fights with with John Conti, the aforementioned Marvin Johnson. He'd had the two fights with Yaki Lopez, which I think the, the the second one in particular is rightly regarded as one of the most thrilling light heavyweight fights of all time. But even before that, before he was winning belts, he was fighting the likes of Richie Cates in really stunning action fights that defies belief that Saad could take the shots that he did and then come back and win fights and you could see it in this particular fight couldn't you I mean there was only apparently there was less than 1,000 in attendance at the sports arena in San Diego Muhammad Ali was one of them um, and Reg Guttridge was another Um, Mm. and Reg isn't massively impressed with Matthew Saad Muhammad in the early going Uh, but it was it was classic Matthew Saad Muhammad in the it's almost like he needs to be punched in the face to wake up. Um, and Wally, you could argue, won the first two rounds, but all of a sudden, Saad Mohammed lands clean. And he does, he just, it's like someone's just throwing water in his face. He's all of a sudden all over and Wally. And if you, even when you're watching what appears grainy footage when you compare it to what we used to watch in these days on a Saturday night, you are still taken aback by the speed of shot and the manner in which Matthew Saad Mohammed orchestrates those attacks when he had Mwali in trouble in that third round. Um, he really was something special at this point in time. Oh, the the first two rounds, Mwali's positive, busy, looks like he's he's winning and controlling the fight. And then towards the end of the third round, there's a left hook to the body that is one of the first shots that, that lands, always throwing body shots, Mohammed. And then he throws a, a heavy left hook upstairs and that's the punch that starts it and then he just unleashes a barrage of heavy shots uh, Moali's hurt against the ropes looks like he's within seconds of being stopped he manages courageously to kind of ride out the storm and just and only just survives the round but Mohammed just goes after him 
right from the start of the fourth. And I think I counted about six hooks to the body, Matt, throughout the early part of that fourth round. It's always the body attack that leads to the headshots, isn't it? And well, the finish is is just kind of showreel stuff, isn't it? Spectacular. Cinematic, isn't it? It's kind of how you see Hollywood boxing films finish and think to yourself as you watch them, fights don't finish like that. That's not what it looks like. I'm sorry you got that all wrong. But Saad Mohammed really did turn on the style. That finishing left uppercut that literally puts Mwali to sleep deserves its place as as one of the uh, among the, the the finest knockouts that we've seen the most spectacular knockouts because mm. it is awe-inspiring would also be quite concerning as well I'd imagine when you see him while he go down like that um, but yeah the way Saad Mohammed kind of goes about his business in that boxing ring is something else and also, it was nice on this particular one, I think you watched the same one as well, where you've got Reg Guttridge on commentary, um, and then Reg goes into the ring afterwards and he's interviewing Matthew Saad Mohammed. And just the charisma that oozes <laughs> out of, of Saad Mohammed at this particular time, and just the, how handsome he is. And he's got the 1980s haircut. Um, fantastic physique he looked great you can see why there were Hollywood agents sniffing around him at this particular time um, and you don't really want to dwell on the boxing afterlife of Matthew Saad Mohammed or even his championship afterlife because he went down a very long road down after he'd lost his title didn't he when these kind of superhuman powers of recovery ultimately failed him he still remained durable but he was losing fights he couldn't pull the trigger anymore and he kept finding state after state after state that would license him um but matthew saad mohammed of november the 28th 1980 was one of the finest light heavyweights we've ever seen and into 1981, where he defended his, his title uh, another three times, all stoppage victories um, against um, Vonzel Johnson, Murray Sutherland, Jerry Martin, defending that for the sixth, seventh and eighth time. It was a hell of a run through the late 70s uh, into the uh, 80, 81 period as well. A hell of a journey, hell of a journey. And I think described, I think he's described by Tris Dixon in the, in the book damage as, as a kind of boxing Superman. And he was in that period where he was vulnerable, but would always find an, an answer with a punch, just that, that punch power that took him to the, the very, very top. But there's some really moving pieces in, in Triss's book. Again, I urge you and encourage you to, to read that damage. Um, and Saad Mohammed is, is very much part of that, that story as well. And that's worth, it's worth going on to read. But as Matt said before, when we were discussing Jerry Corey, uh, Jerry Corey is, this is how we want to, and how we like to remember these fighters is at their best, whether in the ring or around the ring or outside it. And that interview with Reg Gutteridge afterwards is fantastic. Uh, as Matt said, Rich said to him, that was a champion performance. He had a few trouble problems in the first couple of rounds, but that was a champion performance. And, and Matthew uh, returns, why, thank you. You make me blush. <laughs> 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 so charismatic. Um, and of course, he'd be inducted into the, the Hall of Fame in 1998. There are, two, there are a couple of different uh, pieces of footage of, of this fight. But there is an, an, an ITV World of Sport version, which I would urge you to, to, especially if you're of a certain age where you actually remember that. If you're not and you're just a younger uh, boxing fan, then it's worth going back to see what sport broadcasting used to look like a few years back. It's so off his time. So Dickie Davis in 90, is presenting it. He's the kind of Des Lynam of ITV sport where he's got this big bouffon 80s hair with um with a, a kind of graying silver flick in the middle of it. 
he looks like he looks like sort of broadcast sports broadcasting's Cruella Deville, doesn't he? <laughs> Dickie Davis, and then he th- he he throws out to Reg Guttridge, who's who's commentating from San Diego at ringside, and in the the, the first shot where you've got Dickie Davis, it used to be the same on Grandstand on BBC, but on ITV on the World of Sport, and you've got all the typists in the background. <laughs> Wearing, they've got blue overalls on. You've got these women type <laughs> typing uh, sports results. I assume maybe script. Who knows? But you could see it. it's so off its time, Matt, isn't it? Younger, younger listeners to the pod uh, or younger followers of broadcasting and sports broadcasting probably can't won't quite be able to get their heads around it. For those of us who sampled a bit of that at the time, it's quite nostalgic. Oh, completely. I remember watching all of those like you, you'd have your grandstand on the Saturday you've always got some hustle and bustle going on in the background sports night would be midweek wouldn't it um, yeah and you kind of do look back through rose tinted glasses and think well, that was better then but the level of analysis you get today I mean really I mean okay you haven't got the full world of sport broadcast there but essentially you've got Dickie Davis talking to camera for about three minutes if that and then it's straight to the start of the fight Um and I can't imagine it was that cheap to send Reg Guttridge out to, to to San Diego at that particular time as well. Um, it's it's completely different. I suppose the only thing, if you are unfamiliar with it, is in if you watch this kind of the Sky Sports news and you see everybody kind of plugging away in the background today, it was it was that kind of um, it was the equivalent of the time. Um, but yeah. Dickie Davis, Des Lynham, all these guys, Reg Guttridge, Harry Carpenter. Um, different time, like you say, completely different time. And you kind of listen to what Dickie Davis is saying as well, and you wonder if he's being a little bit offensive with what he's saying. Well, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, and <laughs> you know, it's just, you, you, you couldn't get away with it now. Yeah, that's right. Well, it just shows you just didn't know. I think it, it's obviously Sad Muhammad, influenced by Muhammad Ali, Um converting to, to Islam. Quite a few fighters around that time did likewise. And I, I think he says Allah Akbar at, at, um, at the end of the, at the interview with Red Guttridge. Yeah, and there's a, there's a comment from Dickie as, he, as he's thrown back to the studio where he's just like, well, I don't, don't know what that means. Um, well, 40 years later, he would, he would know and understand. But that was very much off his time. And I, one little curiosity about Lottie and Wally Matt, it's probably probably be a quiz question. Is that he went to not one but two Olympic Games and didn't box? Yeah, so it must have been 1970 and 1974. No, sorry, 72 and 76. 72, 76, 72, yeah, Munich 76. And, and Montreal. One of them he didn't make weight, and the other one, his, there, was a, there was a walkout of African athletes, wasn't there, so they didn't take part. But to actually go to two Olympic Games and not compete in either, I'd never heard that before. Um, I never. I'd imagine, like you say, yeah, that is a quiz question just waiting to happen. What a mad stat! That's Lottie Mwale, the number one contender who was put in his place by Phillies Matthew Sad uh, Mohammed. And as I say, please go and read uh, Triss's book and, and lots of the the ideas that are put forth in that. Learning from from fighters like uh, Sad Mohammed about how maybe boxing can do things better and differently now and tomorrow and in the future going forward to make the sport a safer and better place for all those that participate that's the abiding theme that the book is trying to put out so don't be put off if you're if you're worried about confronting or facing up to to fears that you don't really want to to talk about or confront it's worth it and it will be worth it, I promise you, if you if you delve into to that book, of which Matthew Sad Mohammed is very much a, a key component. Um, don't forget to tune in to the Groves, Froch, Froch Groves, The Definitive Story. The latest episode, episode two, is going to be with you on Thursday. Maybe by the time you're listening to that, it'll be out. And then episode three will be 4 p.m. the following Thursday. And then the final episode will be coming up um, the Thursday after that. So every Thursday, 4 p.m. for the next three weeks, the final segments of Froch Groves, the definitive story. Matt, I know you, I know you tuned into the first. It's a cracker, isn't it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've 
really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I was actually on, on walking the dog, and when it finished, um, I was disappointed. I wanted to hear the rest, uh, so really looking forward to it. Not sure about the narrator though; he sounds like a bit of a joker. Yeah, uh, yeah, they 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 could have got someone better, but to hear the to hear <laughs> to hear the um, to hear the fighters talking so candidly like that. And the way it's it's put together, yeah, it's fantastic. So if you haven't uh, listened to it, download that. Listen to it, and the uh, the others, episodes two, three, and four are coming up to you today, tomorrow, next week, and then the week after. Go and enjoy that, and get in touch with us. Please leave us um, a review, uh, tick some stars, depending on how much you like the pod or don't, and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can do that uh, either on iTunes. Um, if you're allowed to do it wherever else you get your podcast, you can uh, tweet Matt or I on Twitter or you can get in touch with us at the email address, which is theopeningbellpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll speak to you again next week. Take care. It's been described as a rivalry that changed British boxing, built on the animosity that existed between two of the modern era's most compelling characters and biggest names. If Carl Froch was the battle-hardened, decorated champion, finally receiving recognition for a run of fights capable of rivaling any fighter in history, then George Groves was the exciting contender, as confident as he was determined to steal Froch's crown. Their thrilling first fight at the Manchester Arena on 23rd of November 2013 brought a conclusion so controversial that it continues to divide opinion. Froch smells blood here. I think Froch needs to finish it here. Their second at Wembley Stadium on the 31st of May 2014 was the most anticipated fight staged in Britain for a generation, attracting a post-war record crowd of 78,000, ensuring both fighters would remain household names. Ten years have passed since two super middleweight rivals left a mark on each other's careers as much as on each other's lives. This is Froch Groves, the definitive story brought to you by Boxing News.